Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to episode 109 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up, my friend? The days are all a blur, Leslie. The days are all a blur. How are you doing? I'm good. I promise this podcast won't be a three and a half hour presentation, though. We will explain that later. But yes, this should not be a three and a half hour podcast for several reasons. Yeah. And uh, but generally, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the weekend. First spring training game is on Sunday. Uh, And I guess the Golden Globes are that day, too. (laughs) Have they even decided if the National League has the DH this year? I feel like there are big things that baseball has yet to actually determine. Jackie Bradley doesn't have a place to play baseball yet. There there are things the baseball needs to straighten out. Yeah, you know, I never thought that I would be into having the designated hitter in the National League, but I'm here for it after last season. So mostly because I like having, you know, Justin Turner in the lineup as JT and then maybe getting Edwin Rios out there on the field and in the lineup, too. But uh, enough baseball talk. And that ends this podcast discussion of baseball. (laughs) Well, let's uh, dive into this week's headlines first up. Leading off in streaming pickups, Hulu is teaming with the producers behind I, Tanya for a limited series exploring the life and career of Mike Tyson. The former champ is not attached at all and is pretty upset about uh, the series. Elsewhere, Hulu has renewed the Animaniacs revival for a third season ahead of season two. HBO Max has added another original series from J.J. Abrams, this one called Subject to Change and described as a harrowing and reality-bending adventure. On the casting front, Tim Riggins, sorry, wait, uh, uh, Taylor Kitsch, sorry, Taylor (laughs) Kitsch will star opposite Chris Pratt in Amazon's The Terminal List series. Gillian Anderson will star alongside Viola Davis and Michelle Pfeiffer in Showtime's The First Lady Anthology. And Kate McKinnon has departed Hulu's Elizabeth Holmes drama The Dropout. That's rather coincidental. Yeah. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. In franchise hopes, Disney is teaming with TV's top five guest Ron Moore to create a Marvel-like Magic Kingdom universe based on characters from theme parks and classic films with a first project called The Society of Explorers and Adventurers. And you can check out our fantastic interview with Ron Moore in last week's episode. The Twilight Zone, or at least its most recent reboot or revival, will not return for a third season on CBS All Access. CBS All Access will not return because it will cease to exist as of next week. But anyway, we will talk much more about Paramount TV Plus in our first segment. And let's file this one under presented without comment. Peacock is adapting old school video game Frogger into a, a reality competition series. So... With that, let's skip across the road to this week's TV's Top 5. 
number one. Leading off this week, Paramount Plus has come into focus following a marathon three plus hour presentation to investors. I sat through probably about an hour of the presentation, maybe an hour and a half, and that was just about all for me. But my intrepid co-host, Leslie, sat through the whole damn thing. So, uh, so Leslie, break it down honestly, however you want to break it down. Yeah, I mean, basically, if you're a loyal listener of TV's top five, a lot of what I'm about to discuss will sound repetitive. But yeah, Paramount Plus is leaning on everything you'd expect. Library, big brands, new incarnations of big hits and franchises to draw subscribers. So what's going on here? So CBS All Access, as, we, as we've talked about, is going to be rebranded as Paramount Plus starting March 4th. Pricing for the not really new service is pretty much the same with an ad supported tier at $5 and an ad free premium offering for 10 bucks. So what will you get? Reboots, revivals, library, feature films, and some, you know, you'll have some of the new feature films from, from CBS and MGM arriving 45 days after their theatrical debut. So they're not going to break the window the way that HBO Max did with Warner Brothers. But yeah, you know, a as we've talked in the, you know, the last year plus uh, on the show, all roads lead to streaming. Paramount Plus is obviously taking a lot of its big properties from its linear networks. So You've got at least three or four of them. You know, it's hard to keep track because there was just so many announced. There were just so many announcements uh, yesterday. So big budget Halo, the live action series that Showtime has been in the works um, since at least 2014. Yeah, that's moving to Paramount Plus. The final season of Younger, which was finally confirmed, will not air on TV land. It'll air on Paramount Plus. You've got uh, Nickelodeon Star Trek Prodigy, which was developed and in tandem with the team behind the Star Trek franchise and Alex Kurtzman and with Nickelodeon Studios. That's moving to Paramount Plus and will likely become a larger animated franchise as kids bringing kids into that franchise and kids content in the larger sense is a huge priority. Plus, then you've got RuPaul's Drag Race moving from VH1 to, to the streamer and an international in, uh, edition of the series also in the works. And then, you know, so basically, if you're thinking of, of CBS, Think of, you know, the big brands that they that they own. Star Trek is one of them. RuPaul is another one. And then you're basically just taking anything that could be good and relevant and moving it to the streamer because no one's watching linear. And one of the things that's interesting that came out in my reporting, you know, I interviewed Alex Kurtzman and Paramount Plus head of originals, Julie McNamara, and the Star Trek Prodigy show will actually have a second window on Nickelodeon. So it's going to debut first on the streamer and then move to linear which is kind of the opposite of what we've been seeing so far, right? You know, HBO originals, you know, drop first on, on the, the premium cable network and then go to streamers. All of the ABC content, all of the freeform content airs first on linear and then goes the opposite way. So, yeah, and you're, you know, taking every single big brand that they've got and then some of the other ones that they're turning into brands. So we reported, you know, a couple of weeks ago that Taylor Sheridan signed another $150 million deal with Viacom CBS. He, of course, is the creator of Yellowstone, which surprisingly will continue to air on Paramount Network, which, of course, is re being rebranded as Paramount Movie Network. But that's a whole other subtopic sub here. But, yeah, it's getting not one, but two spinoffs. So it's got you've got a prequel that was announced around the Super Bowl, and now it's getting another spinoff. And Sheridan's got a few other shows that have already been announced. Mayor of Kingstown, which was originally picked up for Paramount Network, is moving to the streamer, and they've cast Jeremy Renner as the star. Uh, the, the Yellowstone creator has also added a drama, an oil drama based on the Boomtown podcast. And then when you look into, you know, all of these other brands, you know, as we've talked about for, for so long, 
everything that within the Viacom CBS portfolio, all the major brands, MTV, Comedy Central, Paramount Network, BET, et cetera, are all being further funneled as they turned CBS All Access from just focused on one thing, CBS, into everything across the entire company's portfolio. So that means MTV, Chris McCarthy's group is bringing back uh, a lot of MTV favorites. So behind the music, Unplugged, one of my all-time favorites, Yo! MTV Raps. And then you've got Road Rules and uh, a new season of Road Rules and Spike TV hit Ink Master. Um, then you've got a lot of the stuff on the comedy front. Paramount's cashing in on that long gestating missing season of Inside Amy Schumer and bringing that back um, for a series of specials. Beavis and Butthead is is coming back with a feature-length film made for streaming that will tee up the Comedy Central revival, which as of now will still return on Comedy Central. I wouldn't be too surprised if that moved too, or at least had some kind of windowing strategy to come out later. Workaholics is being revived, and Trevor Noah is getting a weekly series on the streamer too. And, you know, look, there's, you know, thousands of hours of 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 scripted episodes, thousands of hours of unscripted content, a lot of kids programming. And then you're going to have a lot of reboots again of big iconic titles. Frasier officially returning with Kelsey Grammer, who's been pitching a reboot of, of that or a revival of that show for years. And then, you know, it's leaning into the big Paramount brand, which we've talked about. That's why they rebranded this as Paramount Plus. It's why Spike TV was rebranded as Paramount Network, because they're leading on the history and the name recognition of Paramount that, you know, these executives think that that is synonymous with quality, right? When you think of, you know, when you're sitting down at a movie and you see the big Paramount mountain ahead of the, you know, the big title card ahead of the production, that's the brand that they're leaning into. And to that end, Paramount TV Studios, which is one of the multiple studios that will serve as a content supplier to the streamer, they're bringing back a ton and trying to revisit a lot of those titles. So you've got reboots in in development of Love Story, Fatal Attraction, Flash Dance, The Italian Job, and The Parallax View, among others. And then you've got a new take on Criminal Minds that's, that will eventually join the service, and it's getting a big docuseries. Their execs were, were first to point out that this show is a monster hit on Netflix. And <clears throat> in the comments with analysts, Bob Backish, who's the CEO of Viacom CBS, was saying, you know, they hope, they expect to benefit. The fact that Criminal Minds is huge on Netflix will only increase awareness of this new project. And eventually that entire library, once the current deal expires, will move over to Paramount Plus. The same thing with Yellowstone, which they sold a few months ago to Peacock to probably try and at least expand the recognition for that that show. Eventually all these rights deals will come back, right? You know, it's the same, you know, the same thing that we've talked about when you, you know, HBO Max sells South Park, you know, or you know, to to Hulu, right? Or you know, to you know to other platforms. So um, wait, I got that wrong. It's the same thing that we talked about when when Viacom CBS sold South Park to a rival to HBO Max. They want that show to get to to bring in more audiences. They want more people to to discover that show for the first time on streaming and then have it come home and really blow up. So yeah, they're using these other other streamers to to increase awareness while also cashing in on these rights deals. And eventually, it's all gonna gonna come back and and every big brand that you've known under Viacom CBS will come back to and then kids programming too, live action takes on Dora the Explorer and fairly odd parents joining iCarly and thousands of episodes of, of kids programming in the library fair. Then you've got Avatar, the last airbender creators who famously left the Netflix live action show. They came back to Viacom and now they're launching a studio to build out that brand among others. So there's just it's 
yeah, it's if you listen to the show, you're not surprised by any of this stuff. That was very impressive, Leslie. You should take a deep breath and a sip of water. No, I mean, that's how I felt covering this thing yesterday. It was a beast. It was it was a long presentation and it was a presentation that, let's be honest, repeated a lot of the same points over and over again. There there were several takeaways that I at least thought were were interesting. There was the emphasis on live events and the roles that that would play within this ecosystem. So they wanted to make a big deal about the amount of sports that they would have access to. And some of the sports will be available on the the low price tier and then some of them will only be available on the high sports tier. And if you get the low tier, you will get the national CBS news. If you get the high tier, you will get local and various other CBS news type entities. They they made a big deal about the amount that you'd get if you pay the limited amount and then the sheer volume you theoretically would get with the large. I'm I'm a little baffled by a lot of what they're choosing to believe are are brands. I am not going to quibble at all with the idea that Criminal Minds is a brand and that there is a lot of value in keeping Criminal Minds going, however atrocious it is as a TV series, um, and that that's something that gets an audience that probably is a wide-ranging audience. I'm not going to try saying that the audience for Criminal Minds is exclusively old. What I will try saying— No, if you—actually, if you look, you know, Natalie Jarvie, who's, of course, THR's brilliant digital editor and a friend of the five, she tweeted yesterday that when she was doing one of uh, her features on TikTok and talked to a lot of those young stars, TikTok and YouTubers, they all say how much they love and watch and how frequently they watch Criminal Minds on Netflix. Well, and that, that surprised just goes, me. That just goes to confirm what I've always thought, which is people who live on TikTok have no taste in television. But anyway, um, no, a, a lot of this stuff, though, is still vaguely baffling to me. I, you know, the idea that even with Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage attached, that a love story reboot is something that has brand recognition for like three generations of possible viewers. It's not just young viewers. It's not just Gen Z who has no meaning for a movie starring Ali McGraw and uh, Ryan O'Neill. It's really several generations that don't really particularly think of what you're supposed to say about a young woman who died. It's it's not anything that's meaningful. Fatal Attraction, limited meaning, Flashdance largely is a thing that people know through parodies of it and through selective hey. scenes. Uh, no, I'm sorry. People do not remember Flashdance as a full movie. If you try thinking about the shit that happens in Flashdance, all right, the all right. amount that you remember of it is 35 seconds. It's a little bit how pe- like people claim they remember Urban Cowboy as a movie. Nobody remembers Urban Cowboy as a movie. They remember five seconds of Deborah Winger on a mechanical bull. I you, feel personally attacked here, Dan. As, as well you should. It's not a brand that has any meaning. And certainly the parallax view has no meaning to anybody other than a certain generation. And, you know, to people who actually like cinema, parallax view is a great freaking movie. If you haven't seen it, you should see parallax view, but you're not getting subscribers in the door by saying we're doing a parallax view TV series. Um, Italian job is a little bit different because obviously there was the remake and a sequel to it. And so it has several generations of recognition. But a lot of this, to me, feels like an attempt to leverage a very old audience that probably was already there anyway. And it feels like there are a lot of things where I'm not seeing how they're going to reach a young audience other than kind of the default of it all, whereas a young audience says we need the streaming thing and they're going to find the one or two shows or 10 or 15. There are a lot of shows here that that pique their interest. Now you 
and I've already mocked you for this via text message, did a uh, Twitter poll, which I, I think which I think is not hugely scientific. But what Obviously. were the results of your Twitter poll? <laughs> so I tweeted this at five o'clock after the presentation ended on Wednesday, and I closed the poll time to when we record our podcast. And we had, obviously, Twitter polls are pretty meaningless, um, but 673 votes asked, you know, the response was 57% no, they will not, you know, Twitter people who voted in my poll said that they will not subscribe to Paramount+. Plus. Um, obviously, I think this this poll may have been hijacked by a lot of the Winona Earp fans hoping that the platform would revive the show, which I cannot fathom would ever be something anyone would be, even be possible at this point, considering the complicated rights associated with all of that show. But yeah, I mean, the bigger piece that that I didn't get from this, two, two things jumped out at me um, as part of the presentation, because uh, let me start over. Two things really jumped out that weren't in this this presentation. One, what is the day one tune in? What is the I have to sign up right now, take advantage of whatever deals are being offered and discounts, et cetera, the way that Disney Plus did Remember when they when they were about to launch, they had it because they were sitting set, you know, saying when the platform launched, everything Marvel, everything Star Wars, boom, done, sold. Right here, this is a pre-existing platform that launched in 2014 that is playing catch up, you know, to reflecting it, the entire company's ecosystem. Obviously, Viacom and CBS had to remerge to allow this to happen and to have this streamer be able to scale in the way that it is. But what's the day one tune in? If you're interested in in the real world, congratulations. There is the real world homecoming, which is the revival of the uh, a reunion of the cast of the first season from New York, all back in the same house. I believe it's available the day of the rebranding. But beyond that, what's the launch show? What's the thing that that says I I need this now? Maybe it's the library. Maybe people are still trapped at home, and you know, obviously people are still trapped at home. I'm one of them. You're one of them. You know, but it, it lacks the urgency. And I'm not saying that I'm not impressed by what they offered. There's a ton of stuff inside Amy Schumer coming back. I never expected that to, you know, to see that happen. You know, that show has been off the air since like 2016 and she's been doing, she did a show for HBO Max, right? But there's a lot of brand interest here. I think Beavis and Butthead will be a driver eventually when they get that library back, but there's so much other stuff going on here, but it lacks the the day one tune in. The other piece that was missing from, from, uh, for me is where are the Kings? Robert and Michelle King created the good, uh, the good wife. The spinoff, the good fight, has been a, a, a critical hit for this platform, and it has been woefully underused. And to me, this is a brand-defining show. That def- you know, like when you think of quality, you think of the Kings. You think of this show. It's part of the critical discussion, and you can speak to that more. But the larger piece that I had is. Where's the rest of the development? Why aren't they turning that into a brand? Why aren't they doing more to expose that? You know, yes, it's an aging show. It's been there for, you know, a few seasons. I think, what, season five is in the works right now. But there was no mention of the Kings whatsoever. You know, and that show is renewed. There's another season coming. Not one mention of the Kings, not one mention of that brand. Or building out that brand. Or leaning into the Kings who have a ton of development across the board. But I would say that they they specifically did not they they did not do the Apple TV Plus path of here are the five or 10 creative geniuses who are our brand. That was sort of what Apple TV Plus rolled out as, as, you know, there was that ludicrous long thing where they had no clips from anything, but it was like, oh, look, there's Steven Spielberg. Oh, look, there's whoever, whoever, whoever. That was not the path that they chose to take 
with this. And look, I think honestly, if you're if you're Paramount Plus, if you're whoever, you know what the numbers are for the good fight on on CBS All Access. And, and I feel like this probably is an indication that they really just are not particularly good. Now, are the numbers not particularly good because CBS All Access as a brand has not necessarily done a great job of promoting that show and and showing people what a good show that is? Yeah, probably. I, I remain on a daily basis baffled that Christine Baranski was nominated basically every year for The Good Wife for Emmys and hasn't been able to get a single one for The Good Fight. That uh, that Michael Sheen wasn't able to get nominated for an Emmy for scenery chewing uh, in the season he was on The Good Fight. That Delroy Lindo, who's very much in the Oscar hunt this year and has been spectacular consistently on that show, uh, has never, I mean, never really even been in the conversation for Emmys. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, that's that's just a... An example. I don't think they were attempting to make the argument that what they had was a a curated sample of critically adored content. I think they were trying to say, here is so much damn stuff that you will be unable to resist wanting a piece of it. And that's that's not invalid. And particularly, you know, from my perspective as a CBS All Access subscriber and a user of the service, not just for good fight but for random stuff like that's where i watch my cbs comedy repeats rather than watching them with commercials on my tv you know it's where i watch mom it's where i watch young sheldon etc um i'm i'm gonna be perfectly happy when i wake up one morning and the little graphic on my uh my apple tv screen suddenly says paramount plus which i assume is what's going to happen is suddenly the graphic is going to change so yeah that's that's my feeling but anyway, I feel as if we have probably discussed this particular topic, which we've also discussed at least two or three times in the past couple months, sufficiently. But undoubtedly, we will talk about it more. Number two. Up second, speaking of streaming presentations, Marvel Studios boss Kevin Feige made his TCA debut this week with a virtual Q&A with press. Dan, you were able to check out this presentation. I missed it, but... What were your big takeaways? Will there be a season two of WandaVision? The answer to that is maybe. The thing that Kevin Feige does really, really well, and which is part of why he is so beloved by movie journalists, is because he always does a spectacular job of giving answers that sound as if they have substance, but are generally evasive and noncommittal. And he is much better at that than, for example, Jeff Loeb ever was. And so Jeff Loeb would just say, it's all connected. And any journalist listening to that bullshit would just go, no, we know it's not. So we don't believe you. Whereas Kevin Feige gets up there and whatever he says generally comes across as being trustworthy. So the, the deal with WandaVision is they don't currently view it as a show with the second season, but it might have one someday if it turns out that it does, because what it's designed to do is dovetail into a movie, and that is what it's going to do. And so, right, that the was, Wanda character is going to be the next Doctor Strange, etc. Exactly. And so, a lot of the questions were about how the new Marvel TV universe on Disney Plus, completely separate from the Netflix and former ABC incarnations of Marvel TV how it actually is going to all be connected and what that actually means. So he got a lot of questions about the distinction between shows that are designed to dovetail into movies versus the shows that are designed to have second seasons. And the answer is 
Some of the shows are designed to be two or three or four season shows, and some of them are designed to dovetail into movies. And he did not specifically go through a long list of which was which. It was, I think, the impression was it was sort of obvious. And he talked about how high the budgets were for a lot of these shows. And I think anyone watching WandaVision has has some sense of that. It's it's a it's a pretty darn good looking show. I, I don't think anyone looks at that show and goes, man, the production values on this are really low. Um, some of the time it doesn't look expensive because they're pretending to be a sitcom from the 70s. And some of the time you go, OK, sure, that's that's a big shimmery thing that's surrounding this town. Um what else did he get questions about? He got questions about Deadpool, which apparently will be the first R-rated, or Deadpool 3, rather, which will be the first R-rated movie within this Marvel Cinematic Universe. And he said that basically they had felt no restrictions previously to not have things be R-rated, just the things that are supposed to be R-rated are, and the things that aren't, aren't. And those are the kind of answers that he gives for just about everything, is if something's going to happen, it, it could, and then... Maybe it won't. So he made a lot of references uh, just obliquely to things that have been rumored on the Internet, as if he's not the person who knows the truth of almost everything that's been rumored on the Internet. So he sort of... Right. The questions of, like, if anyone from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which, you know, it was a Jeff Loeb Marvel project, or uh, Daredevil, or anyone from the Marvel Netflix world, which, again, also part of the Jeff Loeb Marvel TV era that is no more, if those characters could ever come back. And, you know, I read our, our excellent colleague in front of the five guest... Aaron Couch wrote up the panel and, and basically it's like, maybe, you know, but that's also the Marvel way. Everything is super secret, you know, and I think, we, you know, we've kind of become used to that, at least, you know, I, I get why they want to protect the, the creative and the storyline and all that stuff. You know, at, at least they're as transparent as they can be with us for the right reasons. I don't know. that. I don't know if they're as transparent as they can be. Like I asked him specifically about how the rights are allotted now with all of those Marvel shows and what the actual logistics would be of getting those properties back. And he sort of tiptoed around what the rights issues are as if he doesn't know exactly what the rights situations are with those shows. He he does. There There is no way Kevin Feige does not know what rights he does or does not at this exact moment have to using Jessica Jones or to using Charlie Cox's version of Daredevil. Uh, he knows what the answer to all of those questions are. He just also knows what purpose he has for Daredevil down the road or what purpose he has for Jessica Jones down the road. And so all he wanted to do was acknowledge they might have purpose down the road. And, you know, he t he talked about enjoying making shows that, that premiere on a weekly basis and getting to have basically an, an opening weekend of feedback every week. And he talked about enjoying that. And heaven knows one would enjoy that with a well-received show if, for example, the first Disney Plus Marvel show had been Iron Fist, I doubt he would be enjoying getting the weekly feedback to the first season of Iron Fist. <laughs> um, but people are saying nice things about uh, WandaVision for the most part. And there wasn't really a there wasn't really an acknowledgement of uh, of anyone having issues with WandaVision's weekly rollout. He he made it sound like that was the thing he wanted to do. And when an earlier questioner specifically suggested that some of the Netflix shows had not been overwhelmingly well received, which I think is is a, a miss. No, I don't think it is. I, I think I think if you look at it, Iron Fist was the one that was horribly received. Every other one of them, for the most part, was received 
initially positively. Sometimes the attention fell off a little bit. But if you look at the first rounds of reviews for Daredevil and Luke Cage and particularly Jessica Jones, uh, they were all extremely positive. And he wanted to emphasize how many fans those shows still have so he didn't want to say anything bad about them no he, he look the, the guy is the guy is a pro and he is better at being non-committal and evasive than a lot of people in the business which is why people like talking to him he you know he's, he sits there amiably and has and has conversations that feel like they're conversations and then you go and you look at the transcript and you go okay that was not really all that substantive but that's part of his job is, you know, he's not going to come out and tell you, okay, Daredevil's appearing in this scene of this upcoming movie, get get pumped. He, yeah. yeah, no, he does he do, he does enough to sell it, to tease it, etc. But I, I will also give him credit because he's probably one of the, the few executives that everyone is interested in hearing what they have to say. And he actually scheduled a TCA panel. Like, there have been very few executives who have been interested in, in talking with the press. And as someone who is specifically interested in talking to executives, I love those panels. If you're an exec and you listen to this show, come to our podcast, do a TCA panel. Most of the questions, you'll be fine and you can dodge the hard ones, but at least try and come out there. Like I would love to hear from some of these streaming executives or Zach and Jamie have never done any press whatsoever. You know, Leslie, uh, you're so, gonna have to you're gonna have know. to tell the listeners who Jack who Zach and Jamie Jamie are because <sighs> I assure you, just based on that, most of them don't know. <laughs> the heads of Apple TV Plus, former Sony Chief Zach of Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich. So let's get Bella from Netflix on the show. You know, like they're we would love to have execs talk about their vision, to talk about how the business has changed in the past year, to discuss filming during COVID, to discuss these, you know, the challenging economic times of all the, the competition when the price for talent is sore. I'm standing on a soapbox right now, but if you listen to the show, come on the show. We don't bite. Have an informed discussion with us, you know, but also come to TCA. Exactly. There was, there was a very amiable and happy group of reporters asking questions, some of which were tough and some of which weren't, and that's just how it goes. But no, I mean, let me make it clear. Even if I'm suggesting that that Kevin Feige is not the most hugely substantive and revelatory executive when he does things like this, it was very good to have him there because he is such a, well, I mean, he's a massive part of the media landscape just in general, but he's a massive part of what Disney Plus is going forward. And it was important for them to have him present at that press day. And I hope they I hope they felt like they got enough coverage out of it because it felt as if a lot of people were writing up what he was saying and a lot of people were interested because, yeah, even if he's not going to give you substantive details, he's the guy with the finger on the pulse of several billion dollar enterprises. So that's pretty important. Yeah. So next up for Marvel, you've got Falcon and Winter Soldier due March 18th. And by the way, shameless plug, we'll have an interview with showrunner Malcolm Spellman a week after the show debuts. And then they announced this week that Loki is due after that June 11th. So lots going on in the Marvel land. Thank you, Kevin Feige, for coming out and meeting the press and actually talking to us. Um, execs, if you're listening, challenge extended. The door is always open. Number three. Up next, the 78th annual Golden Globes are this weekend with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler hosting NBC's virtual ceremony from New York and L.A. respectively. But an explosive story from the L.A. Times has raised concerning ethical issues about its governing branch, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. 
The Times report found that the small organization has zero black members and receives lavish trips, including one to Paris in support of Emily in Paris, which just happens to have received multiple nominations for this year's Golden Globes. Joining us this week to break down the blistering expose and what to expect from the actual ceremony is THR's award season guru and awards chatter host, Scott Feinberg. Scott, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. So getting started, what are you hearing from studios or even HFPA members about what, if any, long term impact there will be from the Times story? Look, I think it's uh, it's certainly something we're all everyone's talking about because it came out exactly a week before the show, which is, um, you know, makes it something that everyone's going to be asked about. It's likely to be the subject of some jokes on the show. Um, but that's not you know, it's not really new for the Golden Globes to be regarded as a bit of a joke in town. And yet it is sort of like a, a mutual um I mean, I hate to, it's like mutual masturbation. These guys are just like, you know, they use each other for what they need to what they need from each other. It's a great platform for the studios and the networks to get their their stuff publicized by, uh, you know, only the Grammys and the Oscars have a larger audience of award shows um, for the HFPA. They want the talent at their show. They're they're kind of I don't know if I can swear. I think I can. Oh, you mean star fuckers? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, even it, I thought maybe there would be less of that in a year when they can't be getting photos and trying to, you know, chit chat with people, you know, in person, but apparently uh, not. And so. Look, the they they have to really they have to be careful though now about even bigger problems because what the report suggests is they may have some some tax issues as well. They're technically a nonprofit and here they are paying their own members fairly sizable amounts to be doing stuff that they, you know, probably should be doing as members, but uh just for, you know, for free or or certainly not for that amount of money. So it's a very uh strange situation. Yeah, I have, I have to say, you know, certain parts of that L.A. Times story were not the least bit surprising. You know, the the stuff about junkets uh, and how lavish and expensive those can be that that didn't surprise me at all. And I think we we know all that stuff. But it really was the stuff about where the money from NBC for the television rights to the Globes goes and how much of it trickles down to, for example, people who sit on committees or or former presidents who apparently receive $1,000 a month as historians. Speaking as a former president of a nonprofit journalistic organization, that sounds really nice, but I also know I would never do that. What, what surprised you in that story versus what you already probably knew anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think we knew that the... Uh, HFPA does not have any problem accepting gifts up to, I think now they've recently, you know, in, in the last few years, put a cap on like, I think 150 bucks or something for, you know, stuff they can receive from each film or, um, that itself is a little weird. We knew they were getting junkets, uh, and we knew that they get disproportionately, you know, valued because look, it's 87 people who the rest of the year, you know, went outside of their Golden Globe related activities are not really that important. They they write for in the very most part outlets that nobody particularly pays much attention to. They're not hard hitting journalists. They are. I mean, if they were, they wouldn't be allowed to accept like if I were a member of the HFPA, I would not be allowed to take a free trip to, for Emily in Paris or something. I mean, you wouldn't 
you wouldn't a you wouldn't have the time in your schedule to do that. So look, these are these are this is the other thing that that sort of sparked the attention here on this story was that they were being sued by somebody who was saying, "I am a qualified journalist. I want to be in your organization, and you're not letting me because." Essentially, what she was alleging, and and I think it's still ongoing to some degree, is, look, you guys have basically carved out the world and said, sorry, if if I have two reporters already covering the region of Scandinavia um, on behalf of the Golden Globes, we don't want another one because it makes it harder for us to then sell our stories to that region. So essentially what they're being accused of is, uh, you know, monopolizing global journalism covering the industry. And and look, the Golden Globes itself was was founded under shady circumstances. It was it was 70 some odd years ago, you had a bunch of people from from outside of uh, America who were trying to sell stories to their home country publications and they weren't getting a lot of access to Hollywood talent because, you know, who needs it? And and then what they realize is, wait, if we start giving out awards and we form an organization, we become more valuable to them and, and it's work for them. So I don't know if they have a huge incentive to change unless they have actually uh, broken the law. And this, of course, raises the question that we ask every year when it comes to the Golden Globes. How are you feeling about the fact that we're giving all this attention to the Golden Globes at all this year? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think there will in the grand scheme of things, be less attention paid to the Golden Globes this year than, and probably all award shows than ever before, largely because, you know, forget that it's on Zoom, which makes it less cool and glamorous to watch, but also very few people have seen these movies. They, they are, you know, the movies that would have had wide appeal have generally been held for whenever the theaters can resume normal business. And the ones that are left, while, you know, many of them are very good, are not movies that for the most part people are are rushing to watch on a streaming service the minute they drop and so uh that more than anything more than the host more than the length of the show that has been shown to correlate with ratings um and so that's going to be a problem you're probably going to have a very low rated globes and i think the only value of the globes to the oscars this year may be what you know learning what not to do because the oscars are 2 months from today we're speaking on February 25th, um, they are going to have to do, they're going to have to try to, to copy the things that work and, and change the things that don't. You know, but in, in a larger sense, I, my question here is, you know, with all the, the Golden Globes, you know, award season is a business. People forget that, you know, getting a, a you know, winning a Golden Globe helps with marketing and helps cut through the, the clutter. It's the same thing for, you know, Grammys, Oscars, everything else, right? You want that stamp of approval that this is one of the best and it helps you, you know, in some cases when in a normal world, you can re-release the movie in theaters and there's additional box office, et cetera, or helps you in the TV universe cut through a very cluttered landscape. But in a larger sense, I'm wondering for the future of, of this awards group, can you see it having any long-term effect? Like, will, you know, these network studios, movie studios, and, you know, streamers spend less money campaigning for, for Golden Globes? You know, does NBC still care about televising this? I, I don't think that the competitors are going to be the ones to to put an end to this. I mean, they could if they all united and said, we're appalled and we're not going to condone this behavior and we're done and we're pulling our money. I mean, this thing could be gone overnight. Um but they have the greatest incentive for it to go on because it's basically 
you know, a great publicity tool for their road to the Oscars or the Emmys or whatever. So the people who are going to have to address this are the broadcasting partners, um, you know, at NBC who have recent, the reason that the HFPA now has all this additional money to be paying its, its members for different things. And, and, uh, you know, it's because in the last few years, NBC was forced to renegotiate its deal with the HFPA and is now paying them something like three times what they used to pay them. So, you know, you can't blame the HFPA if they have a whole lot more money coming in and no restrictions. No, there were, it doesn't appear that they were told like, look, this comes with the terms of you guys also cleaning up your act and being more professional that, you know, they are not, they don't have a, a reason to change then. They've, it's worked great for them. Uh, so it's really, I think, ultimately going to be about NBC saying, as as I think it was CBS years ago, like, you better clean up your act or we're pulling you off the air. Yeah, which I, is also, to me, it, it it's mind-boggling that NBC would pay more for this when ratings for award shows continue to slide. I mean, it's like rock-bottom territory, you know? And even in a non-pandemic year, you know, award shows have been slipping. You know, it's no longer the must-watch live event. And Beyond that, it has no repeat value. Well, I think the thing is, though, that for probably a lot of years, the Golden Globes were getting less than they, you know, theoretically should have based on their audience that they attract. And so, yeah, I think that they, you know, award shows are are doing a lot worse than they used to. But they're still, aside from, you know, the Super Bowl, I think among the most watched live events. And so uh, there is still value for NBC, but if NBC starts to get shamed into, you know, correcting this or Dick Clark Productions, which produces the show, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stakeholders here who, who do well off of this, but they just have to decide, do we, do we want to be respectable? And do we think it's in our interest to be respectable? And and it's tough because the there are people in the HFPA who have been in the organization for 50 years. This is not something that you can easily change overnight. I think the only real thing that could happen would be a total revamping of the structure of the HFPA where suddenly they were bringing in a ton of international press, you know, like really in the way that the Film Academy has basically doubled in size in in the last few years something like that which shows like yeah we are actually here to represent hollywood based journalists for international publications not just those who you know have sort of carved out a, a niche and are keeping other people out it's here that we probably should mention that uh, that Dick Clark Productions is a division of MRC which is the co-owner of the Hollywood Reporter through a joint venture with Petsky Media titled PMRC. Yeah. So we'll see if yeah, I'm still. Full disclosure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Um, so so let's move on, you know, quickly uh, to the telecast. You've got Amy Poehler and Tina Fey hosting remotely from both sides of the country here. Uh, what can you expect from the telecast? I think probably the model of what we saw with the Emmys is going to be similar. You'll have some in person elements that are socially distanced and not just the host, but maybe they'll, I think they're going to rope in a few people to stand far away from other people and read something or say something. But basically, you know, you're going to have people sitting at home on, on a high end zoom with their friends and family, probably drinking more than they usually do because that's what happens at the globes, even if it's virtual. And, you know, uh, that's the best you can hope for in a, during a pandemic, I think. So, okay, uh, this award season has felt, at least from my perspective, to be a little bit 
choppier or more disorganized than normal. And I'm wondering if that, to your mind, makes this a more unpredictable year than most recent Golden Globes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, part of it is that there, you know, there are not these large gatherings where you kind of get a sense of what everyone else is thinking. So there's not group think, there's not, um, you know, people kind of having necessarily a consensus around things as there usually is by this point. And, you know, so really the Golden Globes are going to be the first um, of these high profile shows to announce winners. And they, they also have all these other wild cards like, Hey, you know, we are, we have, we felt that we are decades long friends with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. So we're going to nominate their kid Goldie, or we're going to nominate their kid, Kate Hudson for music, a a movie that's at 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and and is ridiculed um you know there are all these things that come in oh we we you know we have we like anthony hopkins maybe more than chadwick bosman potentially because oh we have no black members and we love european people like there's just there's all these things that happen with the hfpa that you don't even have to think about with other organizations and so um yeah i think you mean reputable organizations i think is the word you were looking for right <laughs> sorry yeah. low-hanging fruit here yeah no i mean it's uh it's a very weird situation and you remember there's 87 people only that decide this stuff and they the rest of the year could be your waiter at like you know <laughs> uh, your local you know restaurant so it's 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 like sort of the way when people are like i can't believe oscar member uh, academy members haven't seen every movie that's in contention for the Oscar. It's like, you know, you take this more seriously than they do. So we're, you know, wrapping up the segment. Let, let's do some uh, speed dating style predictions. All right. So for the uh, best picture drama, who do you got? I think it's Trial of the Chicago 7, but it could could be Nomadland. That's, you know, they, they to a degree, do think about what's the Academy likely to do next. And I, I don't think they want to be you know, way out there, even if, you know, Mank is their most nominated movie, I'd be surprised to see that win. I don't think The Father's going to win. Promising Young Woman, woman maybe, but probably between Trial and Nomadland, I would lean Trial. Uh, best Picture, Comedy. If they give it to music, that'll kill them faster than the lawsuits. <laughs> uh, so I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think The Prom is going to happen as much as they like Ryan Murphy. The weird thing here is they've nominated Hamilton, even though it's not a movie musical it's a filmed play um which it's just bizarre no other no other organizations given them that same opportunity so i mean maybe but i think it's between borat's subsequent movie film and palm springs and i think borat is the likeliest winner okay best tv drama yeah so here you know all indications are that the crown is in good shape they have been very aggressively campaigned by Netflix. But beyond that, um, you know, it is the the one of these uh, drama nominees, the only of the drama nominees that really has across the board support. It's, you know, Ozark, they've never been big on. Ratchet, I cannot imagine. I mean, the nomination, again, is the win. That's a Ryan Murphy show. It's sort of like tip of the cap to him. Lovecraft Country and Mandalorian are the other uh, you know, are kind of the newcomers to the category and um, are, you know, you can't rule that out because the HFPA famously that, you know, their big thing is, hey, we we did it first so that you're now forever supposed to be loyal to us because we called it first. Um, but I, I think they're going to go with the crown. TV comedy. 
can't imagine it's going to be Emily in Paris, although a trip to France <laughs> might have changed my view on that, I guess. So I don't know. Uh, Schitt's Creek is up for the last season, which obviously swept the Emmys. But the other finicky thing with the Globes is they hate to copy the Emmys. So even if it is their favorite show, they will generally go with something new again so that they can stamp you know, that it was theirs. And so that leaves us the flight attendant from HBO Max, the great from Hulu and Ted Lasso from Apple TV plus any of them could win. My guess from, and, and sort of having spoken to some of the folks involved here is that I think they're going to give the great, the comedy musical series award, and then split up the acting awards between the other two so that Kaylee Cuoco would win for flight attendant and Jason Sudeikis would win for Ted Lasso. And they really do approach uh, these things like, you know, they kind of caucus some small groups of the members and they're like, well, we've got to take care of this network here. and We've got to do this there. And here's a way that we can get the most people represented and not piss off a, a network by completely excluding them. So that does seem logically the best way to to divvy things up if if you're them. The Globes is notorious for always picking one completely absurd winner. Scott, knowing the Globes the way that you you do What's who's your big guess that that will shock? Like, what's the surprise winner? Oh, man. Um, I think that something they might do, which will certainly ruffle some feathers, perhaps rightly so, is, you know, they've taken a lot of uh, the one thing they did get complimented on this year was having three of the five directing nominees be women. Um, You had Emerald Fennell for The Promising Young Woman, Regina King for One Night in Miami, and Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. The other two nominees are David Fincher for Mank and Aaron Sorkin for The Trial of Chicago 7. I think there is a sort of even odds shot that they go with one of the guys, and it could even be Fincher. And, you know, you remember the year that the Oscars had their first Best Director winner who was a woman, their only one so far was Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker, who at the Globes shortly before that lost to her ex-husband James Cameron for Avatar I I think this could go to one of the guys and I think that would cause a bit of a backlash the eye rolling would be aggressive but as you've as you've explained very well the eye rolling should probably be aggressive regardless (laughs) thank you so much for joining us all right take care thanks you can listen to Scott's regular award season interviews on THR's awards chatter podcast thanks a lot guys up next is our showrunner spotlight segment it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Number four. Our guest this week is Russell T. Davies, the wildly prolific British writer who created Queer as Folk, Cucumber, A Very English Scandal, Years and Years, the 2005 revival of Doctor Who, Torchwood, and much more. His new series, HBO Max's It's a Sin, made its U.S. debut last week and focuses on the early days of the AIDS epidemic in London. Welcome to the podcast, Russell. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So... One of the themes of Matthew Lopez's The Inheritance is that there has been an entire generation of gay men who have come of age without memory or experience of living through 
the peak of the AIDS epidemic. How conscious had you been of that phenomenon and how much of that was the impetus for you to finally make this part of one of your shows? I think absolutely. I'm, I'm a 57-year-old man. I've been out for decades now, and that's the experience of growing up in the world. I mean, don't you don't really like you go to every charity dinner thinking, where is everyone? And you certainly go on every, every gay march thinking, where is everyone? And I don't just mean the straight people. I mean the, the gay people as well. It's like, it's 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 always been the case, I think. And it's like... You know, it's it's kind of the job of every next generation to move on and forget us. I'm not going to get too cross about that. That's the way the world works. It's like we we did. I wasn't running around as a 70 year old going, "Oh, I wonder what happened in the 50s." I was I was interested in the year 2000. All I would imagine is riding a monorail in the year 2000, wearing my zoot suit and like my zoot suit, my space suit. I think I mean, <laughs> zoot suit. What happened? And um, you know, it's like so. I it's kind of almost something I don't get too cross about. Because, um, and I think it's something happens as you get older. As I get older, I kind of think, I literally think with astonishment now that the end of World War II was, it was less than 20 years before the time I was born. I now know that's a heartbeat. That's nothing. At the time, it felt like World War II was the stuff of black and white movies, the stuff of, 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 of legends almost, the stuff that just had no relationship to anything that I was or am. And so... Does history shrink as you get older, or do I mean it gets bigger? But but it actually feels closer. That's what I mean. As you get older, history feels closer, and you realise. God, you realise that my parents were still staggering out of out of um, you know the starvation that the British Isles had uh, rationing uh, during World War Two, when the whole island was cut off. So um, it's an amazing thing. And I think I saw that my father as well. As he got older, the more the, as my father got older, the more he talked about friends he'd lost in the war. I'd have made friends of his who were 16, 17 when they joined up and one of them died drowning in oil and and some of them were, planes fell apart in the sky and those boys fell out. He talked about them more and more and more as he got older. It's, I, I learned their names comparatively recently, which I never heard about when I was a kid. So, I mean, obviously that's a thing. That's a process. Here we are, haunted by the past in a good way. You know, it maybe takes us a while to find ourselves and find who we are and then you can start looking back so maybe that maybe that Matthew Lopez um and he's younger than me significantly younger than me though but um so he's he's ahead of his years um but same process same thoughts same recognition that a story like this needed to be told I think you know, It's a Sin is a show you've been kicking around since 1995, even before you you even made Queer as Folk. And for our U.S. listeners, this is the original Queer as Folk, not the Showtime redo. But why do you think a show like Queer as Folk needed to come first to lay the groundwork for something like It's a Sin? Yeah, there's a, there's a danger of making my life sound planned, <laughs> which it isn't at all. And also I make myself sound the he- like the hero of my own life. Although if I don't do that, who the hell else will? So allow me a bit of that. But um, yeah, it was, you know, I went to write that in 1998. I mean, I think the significant thing about Queerest Folk in this discussion is that it, the British one barely mentions um, HIV or AIDS at all. It is there. If you actually watch it, it's almost on every page, taking away mentions of vigils and, and charity nights and people who they lost. So it does tick away in there. But it but that was absolutely the right decision to make in 1998 because that's a time when we were only ever being defined by a virus, both in the news and in fiction. If a gay or a queer character cropped up, we didn't even say queer then, um, if the gay character cropped up, they would be related to an HIV story. They would either, and always, in everything, that's all we ever saw. 
And it was literally time to break free. I know 98 were kind of, again, you look back historically, you think, you know, so that's two years after the the first drugs began to work and stuff like that. We didn't think like that at the time. We didn't know they were working at the time. Um, that, that, that kind of gets rewritten with hindsight, as though everything was all right from 1996 onwards. It wasn't at all. We had no idea. It all felt like one of the big experiments still. It all felt deadly, to be honest. And um, so it was time to break free of that. It was time to say, actually, we can be gay. We could be queer. That's why it reclaims the word queer. It goes back and seizes that from history and says, this is who we are. Very important thing to do. And it upset a lot of people. It upset the gay press hugely. My God, that was a press launch when the gay press realised that we weren't spreading a safer sex message in it. And so you said, they're going, well, you don't ask that straight dramas. And they should spread a safer sex message too. That's not a gay thing. Uh, that was great press launch. I was like, I was on fire that day. Let me tell you. Um, I loved it. I loved, I loved the battle. And I can see why those arguments cropped up. They all make sense. But um, So, yes, I had to do that first. Um, I think the most interesting thing to watch is, is a thing. Uh, it was on Logo over there. It was, just, I think, a series they called Cucumber, which, um, which was not a successful series that died a death. Um, it's a very tough series. It's very knotted. And actually, if you want to see what that's, uh, it, it's rising towards the writing of It's a Sin. It's about a middle-aged man's angst, his body fears, his fears of intimacy, his fears about falling in love, and all those fears stem from the 1980s. And I literally kind of pressed, I've sat in this room I'm in now. I haven't moved much. I'm still sitting here. I sat in this room, pressed send on the last episode of that, and literally kind of said to myself, right, I have to write about AIDS now. That that drama led me in the right direction. So they're all in the wrong order. If you watch them in order, it would go, it's a sin, queer as folk, cucumber. And if you do that, you'll get the story of one man's life. If you imagine that the lead character survives through the, all those, those three different shows, you've kind of got my take on a modern gay male. Now, you, you mentioned the response of LGBTQ critics, but what did your friends or colleagues say about the absence of AIDS in those shows? Like, were, were people understanding of the point you were trying to make? Oh, yes. I've got to say there were no great big battles over that. I mean, I had, I've always been blessed, I think, with an awful lot of freedom. Um, and that's because I take my responsibility seriously. It's like I have, you, you earn freedom by working well and working out in a very simple sense. I work hard, I deliver, I deliver on schedule, I'm a producer of these things as well, I deliver on budget, and I deliver what I say I set out to do. That's the hugest part of, of making a show, is is delivering a promise. Um, so I get given a lot of trust from that, and um, it's very simple, that's what I mean by freedom. If that's what I wanted to do, then that's what I wanted to do, and it wasn't, it wasn't contentious, no one, we talked about it, but um, I had my reasons, and stood by it and it was very valid um i liked what they did then and the american queers folk they did really clever stuff like um they took the older character bernie he's called in uh the british version is he called vince in the, Amer in the american version that's the woman the man that lives with um sharon gless uh hazel in this country and that's a man who was hiv positive and thought he was going to die and had spent all his money and then the combination therapy came along and so he was going to live but he'd spent everything he had i thought it was a really interesting spin i love the fact there was room there to take characters and fit them into actually it's a great story you know never mind never mind the issues of hiv what a great story a man who thinks he's going to die and spend all his money and then finds out he's going to live that that's a wonderful bit of storytelling so i'm glad the show had room for that but um yeah yeah, no, no great arguments. I've got to say, I've been very lucky in that sense. 
Maybe people should have argued with me more. It might be your next question, which case, <laughs> which case, which is of a fight, Joey. Well, that actually does lead me into my next question. Uh, you know, for It's a Sin specifically, how challenging was it to get a green light given the subject matter? I mean, did you encounter any kind of pushback? And what were some of the the notes that you heard in the early days of, of making the sin and, and making the show and pitching it? There were. Um, I, again, I, I hate to sound myself sound like a valiant fighter who strove to get it made, although I was, and I did. And, but I, I was successful in the end, so I can't complain about too much. It was interesting. The pro, it's like, for example, it was first turned down by Channel 4, which is where it's ended up. But but I, I, you know, I, I don't, there was no homophobia behind any of these reactions. Trust me, you don't even let me through the door if you've got any homophobic <laughs> pulse in you. It's like, why would you even talk to me? But also, but I don't believe commissioners like that exist. Commissioners want new stories or, or great stories told about things that they haven't looked at in a particular way before. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, and I'm guessing here. Um, I think it possibly in 2016 there was a very good reason to turn down uh, uh, this at Channel Four because they just uh, aired Cucumber. So in a sense, they, they've done the white gay male show, the white middle-aged gay male show. It's like, you know, maybe they were looking for the great lesbian show, the great queer show, the great other show. There's, there's plenty of other writers out there. So I I kind of always wondered if that was part of the reaction, which was fine. It was, um, it was, it was interesting. I was told at one point on another channel, I don't like to talk about these other channels because these people, I work with these people all the time. They're friends of mine, actually. But I was told at one channel that if it started on an AIDS ward in, say, 1990 or 1992, um, you know, with the bleep of the machines and people dying, and then kind of went 10 years earlier. And I just thought that was unbelievably crass and just literally refused to do it. And uh, literally I was told, Bless Nicola, my producer, like going, I know you don't like that scene, but if you just type it out, if you just type one page of that, it might get made. And I just sat there going, I can't do that. I can't. If it's, if it's rubbish, I can't type rubbish for a page. I refuse. See, I sound like a hero. But I can't. I didn't. I literally couldn't type that. God, I'd rather die than type that page. And I was right. It's the wrong way to tell it. She was like, oh, we can cut it afterwards. We can make the show and then win that argument. I was going, I can't type that out. So um, it was a lot of nonsense like that but um then you just wait you just wait for the right commissioner as ever my experience tends to be that um this is gonna sound very arrogant but i really have been sitting in this chair for 21 this is where i sat and wrote queer as folk i'm literally in the same room uh, the chair has changed the table has changed the computer slightly updated but um but in my experience all the bosses will leave their jobs and i'll stay sitting here <laughs> it's my great lesson of television that the, the the bosses never stay, heads of department go every two years, every three years. I've been through hundreds of them. So just sit still and the right person will enter, enter the seat in there. That's terrible, isn't it? I don't know if that's arrogant or lazy. It's lazy. <laughs> but it's true. It is true. It's, and it's true here too with US television. You know, so much of our podcast talks about the executive changes that go on and, and especially within the past year, how the business is evolving. They all started revolving. I think they all started revolving in the early nineties, and they've never stopped. Actually, it was it was calmer before then. People would stay. You'd have people in jobs for like seven, eight, nine years. Then, no longer. And um, literally, that's what happened. And people changed, and heads of department changed, and I got commissioned. It's funny, isn't it? Does it feel as if those changes have been, for the most part, in the direction of, of progress? That there hasn't been sort of backsliding. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, honestly, the freedom I get given is extraordinary. And, you know, I know I'm speaking about television. I think I'm getting old. And I think I worry about my stuff looking old. And I'm talking about 
a British TV landscape that's just unleashed I May Destroy You in the past year, which I think is the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. I mean, I, it's, what, what is that show? What genre is it? It's just utterly fantastic in every second of its being. And I, I Hate Susie, written by Lucy Preble. Um, this really brilliant stuff coming out. So, um, you know, I worry that I'm, I'm the kind of white middle-aged blokey. And, um, and fair enough, you meant to be. You know, I've worked with lovely Charlie Covell, who did, uh, can we swear on this? Um, she did a show called End of the Fucking World, uh, which is a really extraordinary piece of work. Um, I worked with her years ago. I love Charlie. and She's a leader of the future. So um, it's, 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 I mean, it's a smaller business in, in Britain. And that makes it a little bit more nimble, I think. It makes it livelier. It means Steve McQueen's just has a chance to make a series called Small Axe over here that was radical storytelling. I loved it. Actually, it wasn't even that radical. It was just stories you'd never seen before, stories of the black experience in the UK. I loved it. The stories were actually beautifully straightforward. They were radical at times. They were just wonderful. Um, so I, in my experience, it's. I think I was, had spent yesterday talking through a friend whose pilot had just been turned down by ABC out there. And I kind of talked him through it stage by stage. And I'm not being rude to ABC people. I'm sure they're lovely, but I... I could kind of see why it wasn't fitting ABC, that it wasn't um, more standard, as it were. Um, although possibly that's that's his mistake. Maybe he made it too standard. Anyway, so in my experience, commissioners are, want the stuff. They're hungry for the next idea. They all are panicky if they've missed the next great idea. And I think writing gets, I think television writing gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I think we're truly in a good age. Look at WandaVision. I mean, WandaVision is the most imaginative thing I've seen. You know, that you wouldn't expect that to crop up in our conversation now. We're talking about radical pieces about sexual politics and racial politics. Who thought Marvel television would turn around and produce something that strong, that mind-bending, that inclusive? We're all talking about what's happening, what's going on. I'm telling people to watch it. We thought would be a few superheroes throwing villains over their shoulders, didn't we? We all thought this would be a laugh and Wanda and Vision will sort things out. We all thought from those movies she couldn't act. And she turns out to be one of the most ferocious actors in the world. I mean, isn't that brilliant? I mean, the joy and the freedom. And that's a Marvel franchise that you expect to be just, you know, I fear for, what is it, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, that that next series coming out, because how on earth is he going to match WandaVision? (laughs) So, you know, these are good times. No, I'm I'm glad that you said that because it's fascinating to hear. You're right. We, I did not expect this conversation to include the, a discussion about WandaVision. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, talking about how much things have progressed and evolved in you know in television, especially the stuff that that you're making. What's next for you? How do you see you evolving? Do you is there a second season of It's a Sin? What's the next chapter in your journey? I have no idea, actually. Uh, I don't think there isn't a second season, and I really should write to the cast and tell them that. I'll phone them up. Um, um, no, it's done. It was lovely. It was. It said everything I wanted to say. I just, the only long-running thing I've ever done is Doctor Who, and that's because Doctor Who is designed to be long-running. And I just like um, I just like running out of the room before they fail, really. <laughs> and I don't always manage that. Um, so, um, and I'm not quite sure, actually. It's, been, it, it, it's um, I'm actually, I've had a funny year where a couple of people have contacted me. I'm getting old. They've contacted me asking to mentor them, and I, which I've done, which I love doing. And both those shows have been picked up. They've been commissioned. So strangely, I find myself as a script editor after all this time. I think the universe is telling me something. It's saying, stop. Stop, David. Stop writing. We've had enough. Um, but actually, I'm going to spend. I'm going to have a lovely year doing that. Um, 
working on their scripts instead of mine. That's a nice year. I'm looking forward to that. I will start writing. It's like, it's, I don't know how you, how I follow something like it's a sin to be honest. I think that's a genuine problem. I think I should just go write something very funny. I think, I think I've become a bit of a, I look at my career and I'm a little bit puzzled. And when I became such a tragedian, when I'm a really big laugh, actually, and it's like sitting over there, I've got, I've got the British Award for comedy writing from 2001. That's how old that is. But it's literally gathering dust on my shelf. I was comedy writer of the year in Great Britain. I'm very proud of that award. And um, and somehow my work, it's like years and years was very tough. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time to it's time to have a laugh again. I think. I think that might surprise, but I think that'll wrong foot people as well, which is nice. Not that I say people, as though everyone's waiting on the edge of their chairs, waiting for what Russell T. Davis is going to do next. But in amongst those 12 people, I might surprise some of them. <laughs> well, I mean, from the outside, it feels as if your career sort of goes in topical waves. Like you had the five or six years where you were in the Torchwood Doctor Who universe, and then lately it has felt like you've been more in a political... Uh, topical run in in your mind. Do your genre interests kind of go in in waves in phases, or is it just dumb luck? It's it's kind of only visible afterwards. It's weird. I've just done. You know, I spent many the past few years. This is my blue period. Where <laughs> please, but on camera, I am laughing as I say this. Um, weirdly, the last three projects have been decades spanning years. I, I did a very English scandal, which covered twenty years. I did uh, Years and Years, which covered 15 years, and I've done this, which covers 11 years, in, uh, in oh, uh, 10 years, actually. And so I'm getting shorter. One, eventually I'll get down to one day. <laughs> right about 2031. I've been delivering stuff that happens in a second. Um, but it's, it's odd. It's, it's, and, I've, and I've actually taught myself some good tricks over that time of telling stories that span a long time. But um, now it's time to... It's probably time to throw those tricks away, actually. And and uh, it's just, but I didn't plan that. I didn't sit there thinking, now I must tell a drama that has to cover a decade. It's just weird that all those things have come along at once. And so I, I there are kind of tides and movements to it. And I'm only aware of it in hindsight, except I am aware of it. It's like, it's, it's, you have a hard time now pitching a new science fiction show at me because I do say, I, I do say to God, I've done the best. I did Doctor Who. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, One Division. I'm sorry, everyone. It's the best, and it's, it's and we and you know we had such an extraordinary time with it. And lit, we took that show to like Super Bowl ratings figures in this in this country. It was such a joy and such a success. So, if you offered me like you know blah, the monster from Planet X now, I really wouldn't be. And I do get off things like that. Or you know, oh, psychic girl lost in the forest. Um, every thriller is like that. I do get off that. I'm just not interested because I did Doctor Who. I did the best one. So I kind of. I I make those waves happen afterwards. If you see what I mean, I make yeah, I make those, I reinforce those periods with hindsight by saying, no, I've done that. Well, the per- the perception on Doctor Who was that it was kind of a fallow property, and then you made it back into the thing that people were talking about. I- is that something that attracts you in any way? Like, obviously, you like that that science fiction genre world. Are there properties where you're like, well, that was cool. This was cool when I was. 20, I would love to make people understand why that's cool again. No, only because I did that so <laughs> powerfully on Doctor Who. And let's face it, so successfully, it, it's, it would be a nightmare trying to do that again. Um, and also, but now so that's the only show I've ever loved that much. There isn't any other show. I've, uh, um, uh, I like the soap operas. I like evening soap operas, like, like 
combination, but they're still running, and I, I couldn't work on them. I couldn't work with that amount of volume anyway. Um, <laughs> so no, it's, and I do get asked. There are other shows. There are old British science fiction properties that. Um, um, the only one I ever really fancied was Lost in Space. Actually, I kind of thought that was knocking around. I think about I think about fifteen years ago, I was asked about either Lost in Space on television or, or maybe it was one of the movies. And a family Lost in Space. I was and I loved that when I was a kid. I was quite attracted to that. But then I love that new version they've got on Netflix. I think that's 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 good. I think they made that work in extraordinary ways that I would never have imagined. I think it's such a clever show. So that was the only one that there was ever a slight flicker of interest in me. But that's not enough to say you've got a flicker of interest. You've got to love it. The thing is, if you're going to do that, Daniel, you've got to love those things. And there's not many things you love that much. You've got to love it with a passion so much you'll sit here until three in the morning writing scripts that'll convince everyone that this is going to work. That's not many shows in your life, really. So, yeah, I picked the right one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I do want to go back and, t and discuss a little bit more on It's a Sin, specifically the casting. You know, you've been outspoken about only casting gay character, gay act. Oh, well, did you think I said it once or twice? <laughs> well, I can let me rephrase then. Uh, you know, you've mentioned in the past about an, only wanting to cast gay actors in gay roles. Why is that? And that's now. It's very important to say now. Um, that, that's where they, I'm sitting in a house that was built by straight actors playing gay parts. I, I'm very much aware of that, and I'm so respect those actors that I've worked with in the past. The cast of Queer Hope was straight, and uh, and bless them. And you know, recently a very English scandal. Hugh Grant is obviously straight, and um, and what a performance that was. I mean, that's in a part that is um, actually a bisexual man. But um, but actually, and it's the success of those shows and their increasing success with audiences that allows me to reach a stage where I can say right now, I believe in casting gay as gay. This might not be the case in five years time. Actually, I think it will be the case in five years time. But um, and it's not just, it's not simply casting gay as gay, it's casting out gay as gay because legally you're not allowed to ask an act of sexuality. That is a brilliant law. That is absolutely fantastic. That's the same employment law that stops the boss of a factory asking whether his women on the production line are lesbians or not. That's a great law. What that means is you have to open the door and say to actors and, agent, uh, actors and agents specifically saying, uh, these are gay parts. If you have gay actors who'd love to come forward and join with us, that would be great. We'd love to meet them. So what it means is you're meeting people from day one. There's a reason why the cast clicked on this, and that's because they were out and they were politically engaged as human beings on this earth from day one from the moment they walk through the door. And you cannot watch this program and say that it doesn't work. You cannot. You might hate the show. You might hate me. You might hate anything. You cannot say that this doesn't work because um, I think it gives it, I mean, the name of the game these days is authenticity. You know, people objecting to this argument very often say, but it's acting. It's acting. And I sit there going, yes, it's acting. Actually, where's the truth in it? Where's the authenticity? Get now we all have four HD cameras and everyone's televisions are 60 inches and the detail, the slightest glint in someone's eye is for the truth, the truth, the truth. And more importantly, it's the fact that I have night and this, never mind people complaining about this, the complaints that I get as a gay man working in gay fiction, as a queer man working in queer fiction, are the voices of the actors who are not seen, not seen, not seen for these parts. And everyone applauds the straight person because they did very well playing gay. And the gay actors are not seen. If you want to go and cast gay lead actors, well, they barely exist. A lot of gay actors exist now. It's a revolutionary different world to the one that I started out in. There's an awful lot of gay actors, gay lead actors. 
And gay lead actors who were financed the production because they're so famous, still very rare, which proves there were no one near equality. So you have to create these stars. Now you have to go in at street level, at ground level. This cast are young. You look at Oli Alexander, he's so absolutely fabulous. He will be acting in 50 years' time. And in, in right now, I think, maybe he could start to finance productions simply by joining a show. So it's a start. You have to start here. Otherwise, all this talk of equality simply doesn't exist. Well said. Was this something that was kind of in the back of your mind when you were casting the original Queer as Folk and it simply wasn't possible in that moment? Or was there a sort of moment years later where it kind of clicked in your mind, given circumstances, this is what I'd like to do? You're right, it kind of wasn't possible. I, with hindsight, you think, should we have made more effort? Because out-gay actors did exist there. But out, again, out-gay lead actors, it's a great fallacy to presume all actors are the same. And you can't point to an actor and say he's out. That doesn't mean he's a lead actor. That's the tough thing you have to say to actors sometimes. Um, there were out gay actors in Queer Stroke. My friend Anthony Cotton uh, plays Alexander in there and became a British star as a result. He was he's, he, Alexander's the camp funny one who turns up and and then he was cast in uh, an evening soap opera here called Coronation Street and is still in it. He's one of Britain's most famous out gay out actors playing a gay part on television. So it had an enormous effect. It's like that wasn't just like one little quick run of Queer as Folk. Uh, and he was cast in Coronation as a direct result of his his presence in Queer as Folk. So it does have an effect. So I could see that. I could already see the enormous infant. And he's still a mate to this day. He's you know, just, he's wonderful. And and you also get to see how tough it is. And it's tough to be an out gay actor in. You know, it's 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 if you're a straight actor in a gay role. I have sympathy for them because they can walk into a pub on the wrong night with a football crowd in, and if they're that gay person, I'll tell you, they can get in trouble. The gay actor playing a gay role can get in even more trouble by walking into that pub at night. It's still not easy. It's not a simple thing to do. But um, it's simply become more and more possible over the years. And now, that's why that's why I'm saying it now, because I'm not rewriting any decisions I made in the past. I'm not regretting a single straight actor I passed. A lot of those actors, I don't know if they were gay or straight. It's like, it's, 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 I'm not allowed, for a start, I'm not allowed to say, and for some of them, I never, I never even asked. So, you know, it's much more complicated than that. But um, now, the success of those things and the acceptance of the audience and the rising of out queerness amongst the next generation is a great thing. And it's my job as a program maker to make programs modern, to feel like they're made in 2021, to get that energy, to get authenticity. It's my actual job to do this. I would be failing if I didn't. I love that so much. But I also wonder, you know, looking at, at what you did with Queer as Folk and even what, what the Queer as Folk creators in the, in the U.S. did with their show, do you think that there's room for an update? Would you revisit Queer as Folk with a new cast for, for a different generation today? Is that something that is of interest to you? I wouldn't. Someone is someone. Someone's doing it on paper. There's a lovely American man called Stephen Dunn who's got the rights and to Queer as Folk, and um, I hope he gets it made. I, um, I, I'm not sure how public it is about what channel it's for. Last I heard, it was for Bravo, and then it might have been kicked around for for the streamer Peacock here, but I don't know what the I have. It's been a while since I checked in on that. Oh right, yes, it's Peacock's part of Bravo, is it? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's all NBC Universal. Yeah, still, it's still that. I think that's still happening. Obviously. The pandemic came along and everything slowed down. I think that's still the case, though. I think that's still being discussed. And good luck. He's a lovely man. So nothing to do with me. 
um, right. out of, we've read the scripts and and I get a few notes and he's lovely. He's a really nice man. Um, so I hope it happens, but it's not my show anymore. I'm happy to hand it over. I don't think I should be sitting here at my age revamping my old property. I think that's a bit sad. <laughs> right. But, but that said, there is still room, you know, just hearing you speak about the, you know, the authenticity that a lot of that you look for and bringing in with, with your work. And it's a sin. It's right there. It jumps off the screen at you. It's impossible to miss, but so much has changed, not just in television, but with the way that of the, how the LGBTQ community has been portrayed on, on TV. So I wonder knowing and, and seeing how much it's changed and evolved if that would be a playground that you would love to, to to be able to even tap back into, even writing for a one-off episode or a special or a movie of some kind. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure I'll always be part of that. It's like it's funny because it's like when I left Doctor Who, I kind of said I'm going to do gay drama from now on. I made a, a statement to myself <laughs> saying I'm going to do that, and I've kind of been as good as my word. It's like I, I did the Banana and Cucumber and Tofu, and then I did the gayest production of a Midsummer Night's Dream for BBC One that you'll ever see. You should see that if you haven't seen that. That's a lovely production, that is. And then I did Years and Years, then I did a very English scandal, now that it's a sin. So I've been as good as my word. I've kind of reached the end of that cycle, if I have cycles, um, kind of saying to myself, actually, I now think whatever I write will be gay. I think now if I wrote Wuthering Heights, it would be gay. Without changing the sex or gender of the parts, I mean, if I wrote Romeo and Juliet, it just because it's mine, because it's me, it would be my insights into it. So I'm kind of gathering a bit more confidence in this, saying, actually, maybe you don't need to be aggressively queer in your content, but it's queer because I'm making it. Interesting. I don't know where that's leading. I will find out. <laughs> well, now, with It's a Sin, it's only a five-episode run, and when I was enjoying the show most, my reaction a number of times were, man, why is this subplot not a full season? Uh, how conscious were you as you were writing it? I'm leaving five, six, seven seasons of television on the shelf here through the approach that I'm taking. I kind of think that's part of why people like it so much. And, <laughs> and we are talking about a show that's had an incredible reaction. It's, 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 the reaction in Britain has been off the chart. And I'm old and weary and cynical. I thought I'd seen it all. This has taken me completely by surprise. And I think there's a density to it that you can, you know, it leaps years. You love these people two, three years leap in their lives. And um, and I think that you feel it. You feel the missing. I think that makes you feel engaged with it. I think um, you're kind of hanging on to their every word because you know it's about to move on again. I don't know. I think that's that's, that's part of the plan. But it's 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 what I like to do. It's It, it was always a one-off for me. I think when the channel controller actually picked this script up, I, I can remember him saying, uh, oh, this is great. You know, the 80s, there's tons of music. We could run this for years. I think he was very much seeing it as, as like a show that would, you know, we do 81 this year, 82 next year, 82, 84. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I was like, oh, dear, sorry. This is just um, this is just a one-off. So it's just what I like doing. Um, I think partly I'm protecting myself. I mean, if it had died a death, I'd be sitting here going, oh, sorry. <laughs> there won't be a 1982. <laughs> we'll never find out what happened. Um, but it's just, I think... It makes me play every story. It makes it denser. It makes it fun. It means, it means every line becomes more important. Um, I sit there with an awful lot. I do mentor an awful lot of writers, and they all sit there with me, you know, and I sit there going, oh, this character's a bit boring. And they go, oh, no, in season two, he becomes a killer, and he's really brilliant. And it's like, well, why is he so boring in season one then? Just, just make him interesting now, for God's sake. That is my constant note, my constant note on everyone's script. Stop waiting, stop waiting, stop waiting. So um, so I didn't wait. I didn't wait for myself. 
Well, one other thing that I, you know, as we talk about the evolution of LGBTQ on television, I'm wondering from your vantage point, what other facets of the community would you like to see explored next? Whether it's something that you do yourself or see someone else or maybe one of your mentors do. It's a trans story now, it, it's, which, is, which is eating us all up, I think. I mean, how, how, how sad we are actually now to find ourselves in the middle of a good old queer battle again. That, you know, maybe we thought we were crossing those hurdles. Maybe we had the arrogance to think we were there. And it's like we've gone back to square one in so many ways. And, and both sides of the argument terrify me. I've got to be honest. It's like, and, and now I find myself like I'm mansplaining to something, to someone. Except that's not true. That's a fool of, that's assuming trans in only one direction either. It's like, I see what a minefield is. Anything that's this much of a minefield has to be a good drama. Um, so I'm kind of thinking about that. We're in an age now where someone will say to me, in order to be, well, you need a trans writer for that. Um, only trans people can get that across. I have the nerve to not agree with that necessarily because I think I'm a good writer and um, I think I can write anything. Nonetheless, equally, um, if there are trans writers out there, it's, it's, it'd be good to try and help them get that made. Um, it's certainly the back. I mean, it's it's such a vicious area. It's kind of scary um which is also very attractive that kind of proves that that is the drama that should be written but um wow what a fascinating area that is and i mean it's such a minefield now it's so angry it's so angry and so oh there has to be a middle ground all those people have to find a middle ground what i'm very much aware of is that it's it's almost a culture war it's more than a culture war it's an actual war lives are being lost um but it's a war amongst ourselves and i think and what distresses me about it most of all is that it's almost like we're facing the wrong way and we're getting knives in and the people with the knives are the right-wing men standing behind us, loving it while we all fall out, while we argue. There's people loving the fact that the left is disintegrating over this, loving it, that the, the women or cis women are arguing with trans women, cis men are arguing with, with, with trans, cis men are arguing with trans men. My God, our enemies are lapping this up. I'm convinced of that absolutely they can stoke this argument through the press through the press barons through online sites if they can stoke this then they will because they love to see people who should be getting on falling out and i think we're falling out over semantics vital semantics okay we're falling out over really important stuff but that's good we shouldn't be comfortable we should be falling out over things that's what a tough discussion is we're not only here to smile um you know people have got to battle through this stuff we've got to make compromises it's got to be hard one we're not here on this earth to be comfortable but behind us that's where the enemy is. I'm absolutely convinced. Well, how much you talked earlier about how you're spending the next year kind of working as a script editor, you said, but we could put it a different way and say as a mentor or someone putting his heft behind projects to get them made. So hearing your passion about the subject you were just talking about, how much do you see it as being a responsibility that you have to put your name on trans properties that and trans stories that need to be told, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I've been doing it. And I have done, I did a series called Banana, which was a spin-off from Cucubert, which featured the world's first trans actor, my friend Bethany Black, as a trans character on a terrestrial show. All those words have to be included for, in order for it to be a first. But, um, but I mean, it was a first. It was the first, and I'm immensely proud of that. And, um, yeah, so, and, and, and it was a fantastic trans story that... Um, I adored. I was very proud of that. So I've been doing my stuff and um, I've actually turned down stories that were trans stories that are offered to me because I've been going, um, I think you should find someone who is trans to do that. So I do my bit, I have to say, if I wake up tomorrow and I think of a great trans story, I will go and write it. 
and and defend my right to write it equally. So interesting days, interesting days. But that's bound to come, as you can tell. That's where we're heading. And going back to sort of the story that's being told in It's a Sin, one of the things I guess I hadn't been as fully conscious of as probably I should have been was how far behind the UK was in recognition and response to AIDS as an epidemic when it started. Um, A, what were you surprised to find out when you were researching that? And B, have it has have you heard from anyone, I guess, in the institutional settings saying, okay, these are these are still lessons that we need to be learning and lessons that maybe say for example if we were in a global pandemic right now we apparently haven't still been learning <laughs> that's true <laughs> and hopefully our governments can fail us every decade they'll always <laughs> find ways to let us down and um it's funny because it's like um yes i mean i I'm not necessarily taking the UK to be slow in its response. Maybe it was initially behind in its response because the greater number of cases would have been, I mean, to, to use headlines, would have been in San Francisco and New York, you know, wherever the, the greater gay population is. I think there's a danger that um, history is written by activism or either history is written by the activists, which they have every right to do because they did the hard work, or historians will turn to activism because they have documented every meeting, and and whereas people who did nothing have not documented what they didn't do. Um, but and I think that gives a false impression. I think I think it, it, I, I can guarantee you there will have been marches in the Castro and through the streets of New York in the early eighties, and the people on those marches will have been saying, "Where's everyone else?" It's a, it's a mistake to assume that a, the whole gay population mobilizes itself and joins it's a mistake to assume every, all the entire gay population goes on a pride march it does not and i think that's part of the focus that's that uh, i think that's where the impression it's a sin is giving of being behind in that sense is that my characters rise to activism in the fourth episode uh but it is not a flat full of activists and um and that's the experience of most people in fact, i wanted to include those people i wanted to show the lives amongst those people who are not necessarily on the front lines because that's the majority i still think that's the majority it's like every pride every pride i'm like where's so-and-so where's so-and-so where's so-and-so and so many of my friends say well, I couldn't be bothered going. And that's not just an age thing. That, that's, that's, that's been all my life. And that's fair enough, actually. That's fair enough. You don't have to go on a march um, in order to be proud of who you are. But nonetheless, that's true of activism as well. So it's, you know, I hope it's a little bit subtle in that. It's not just saying that the UK was behind. It's saying the people we're looking at are the people who don't necessarily engage what's going on. They should, and Lord knows they pay the price. It's, this is not to criticise activists at all. It's the opposite. Actually, that is, that, that's, it, it is those activists who got ahead of the government and did the science. It's the language of today, isn't it? They, they followed the science and they got ahead of the government and worked out the rules of safe sex um, before the government ever would have done. So, you know, life-saving work was done. But there are other experiences and part of It's a Sin is about those other experiences. You know, that, that said, what do you hope U.S. viewers take away from It's a Sin? I think I think to see to see it's global. Um, you know, I think that what happened that that, bunk, that flat full of kids in it's a sin could be in Paris, they could be in, they could be in Adelaide, uh, they could be in New Delhi. It's 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 a virus that went around the world, and um, you know your your monumental pieces of art, angels in America, the normal heart, um, are American, and they're ferocious pieces of pieces of work. Um, and pose, of course, as well. So I think um, I think it's just been, from the early reactions we're getting, it's just simply good to see it happening. And also, 
this is where I talk about the, the flat not being activists. It's happening on a domestic level, on a street level. It's like you know, this. I made a very big decision at the beginning not to be in the corridors of power. We're not in Downing Street. We're not in the White House. Uh, we're not initially on on. We're not with scientists searching for a cure. We haven't got professors looking at test tubes trying to work it out. It's simply from a bunch of ordinary people looking at their lives who are much more concerned with living their lives in the time of, a, of an epidemic rather than uh, putting that at the centre of their lives to their cost in the end. So, yeah, I hope that gets across. Have there been any conversations yet about an Indian version of this, about a Russian version of this, etc.? Because, I mean, it's obviously you don't want to make it into a franchise per se, but like you say, there are versions of these stories everywhere. Yeah, that's um, I suppose it's early days because we, we've only been out for five weeks. But that is interesting, isn't it? The French version, the German version, the Indian version. Yeah, I'll do that. Well, <laughs> I'll help them. That'd be great. I wonder. I wonder. No one's ever. That's the first time I've ever thought of that. I'd love that. That would be brilliant. <laughs> American version. Why not have an American version? Though I feel like I I, I do feel like because of so much availability of shows like this, almost immediately day and date in the States versus the UK, which was not the case, you know, 20 years ago, obviously, the need to kind of remake things has ceased to be as imperative. Does it feel like that to you as well? That's true. And and we could not get Queer as Folk bought by any time. And now I've got to say Queer as Folk would be snapped up. And um, it couldn't get, uh, the British version, it was sold to like some tiny channel in Miami um, that was clearly run by a millionaire. It's like a hobby. And and that was it. So I think I think like two thousand people ever saw it. It, it, it and it was really a, it was quite. It's amazing, isn't it? It couldn't sell it anywhere. It was not sold to any of the big. You know, HBO did exist back then. It wasn't sold to anyone. And I can't remember why. Did they think it was too contentious, or did they want to make their own version? Well, and then Showtime made their own version. That was it in the end. But there was no question. Yeah, it never got. I thought it's a great shame actually, that um, it was never seen properly in America. Is it now? Could you stream it anywhere? You couldn't, could you? Oh, God. That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> it is It is so impossible to keep up in this day and age with where anything is streaming and when. I think it exists anywhere. I don't think it's in America. And I Actually, I would get letters or, or responses or emails or something, or something on Instagram. It's not. It's not there. Ha-ha. Yeah. And I, I still I, I remember when the original when Queer as Folk launched here in the U.S. And, you know, I've been lucky enough in my career to get to, you know, to become friends with the creators who adapted it. And every time I talked to them, they would you know share these stories about how they would receive death threats. You know, they had security at the door of their writer's room. They had security outside of the sets, you know, and now we're just, you know, the idea of, of that happening now is just that that right there to me is, is a sign of how far we've come. Gosh, that's amazing. We never had that. Wow. Wow. We never had anything like that. You are a bit madder over there. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Yes. <laughs> just a bit. Well, that's the proof. We just proved it. Blimey. Wow. Oh, wow. That's nuts. <laughs> Bless them. They never told me that. That's astonishing. Wow. Maybe they did. Uh, wow. Well, we do like to end all of these interviews that we do with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying right now? Oh, well, WandaVision. I've got you there. I, I, I leapt in with that, which I am. I'm only just discovering The Mandalorian as well. I thought I didn't like it for the first two or three episodes. And then I kind of, I mean, it's still an odd show. He goes there, he kills the monster, he goes home. <laughs> but, um, but I'm kind of learning to love it now. It's the music. It's the music, actually. That music score, 
just haunts me, draws me in. So, yeah, I'm late with that. What else am I watching? It's been a bit of a busy month, so um, not very much. I've been, it's all been, it's a sense, it's a sense, it's a So, um, sorry, I'm a bit behind. I will catch up with my telly soon, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a great show in Britain called Unforgotten, which starts again tonight. It's forced. I wonder if you get that anywhere. I think that's on some, I think that's on some stream in, 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 in America, it's on its fourth season now. I love that new season tonight, written by Michael Chris Lang. I love it. Please show, please cold case show. Uh, every year, six episodes of digging up old, but every year different. Every year with a new spin on it, and I can't wait to see what this year's spin is. So very fond of that. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Russell. We appreciate it. Pleasure. It's a sin is now available to stream on HBO Max. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Dan, it's a really quiet week this week. The biggest launches are Debris on NBC, and there's a notorious B.I.G. documentary on Netflix. What What's worth checking out? Is, is there something else you recommend beyond those? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. This, this could be, and I, I feel like I've said this a couple times in the past couple of weeks, this could be the thinnest weekend slash week of new programming in in recent memory you look at the release calendar and in terms of big ticket friday releases netflix doesn't have one hulu doesn't have one amazon doesn't have one hbo max doesn't have one that is that is pretty impressive uh peacock released its big show of the week on thursday and it was the punky brewster reboot that definitely exists um and definitely doesn't have glomer we've already covered that uh it's thoroughly average. I've, I've read some people tearing it to shreds. To me, there, there's sort of a hierarchy of of these reboots. And to me, Fuller House is always right at the bottom. Um, this is better than Fuller House. And I would say it's better than Fuller House by a, a decent amount. So there's that. Netflix's big release actually came out on Wednesday this week. It's, it's Ginny and Georgia. Uh, our colleague Ingu Kang was not hugely enthusiastic, but made it sound as if it was not painful. So that's a big plus. But no, you you look at what's coming up. Uh, Debris, which premieres on NBC on Monday, is from J.H. Wyman, Joel to his friends. Uh, And it stars, among other people, uh, two-time Tony winner Norbert Leo Butts, uh, Jonathan Tucker, a number of British actors, etc. And the the best way I can describe it is that it is really, really, really fringy, which is not surprising because J.H. Wyman was a veteran of much of the second half of Fringe. And if you are a viewer who loved Fringe and loved its eerie mysteriousness and whatnot, I, I think you probably will dig this. Uh, the pilot is wildly and aggressively expositional. It is exhausting listening to the dialogue in that show. But on the other hand, I kept going the entire time, and every two or three minutes, there would be an image where my response to it would be, huh, that's interestingly weird. And I guess that could be enough. And it kind of sets up a series that might be interesting. It's It doesn't immediately hook you, I don't think, but it does immediately make you curious. So... My review for that basically is it's a lot like Fringe. It's not really as likable as Fringe. The characters are not as warm and quirky as on Fringe, but 
it could have potential to be okay, or it could get canceled after six episodes, and then you'll be really frustrated to not understand. Also on Monday, as I'm as Leslie mentioned, there is a notorious B.I.G. documentary made with support of the Biggie estate. Uh, Biggie, I've got a story to tell. Um, the the notorious B.I.G. story has been told at this point in largely authorized forms enough times that it's hard to feel like anything here is revelatory. The the movie Notorious, the narrative movie, also was done with the support of many people in the Biggie camp, including his mother, Valletta, um, who appears here as a talking head. Uh, many of the talking heads are people who were featured as characters in that movie, and not surprisingly, nothing deviates wildly from the way they were depicted there. Uh, what it has going for it is a ton of fantastic footage. Of, of Christopher Wallace slash Biggie. And if you are a fan, the footage is tremendous. Um, the, uh, one, of his, one of the members of, of Biggie's crew, uh, D-Rock, was basically serving as a, as a videographer for his early tours. And the amount of backstage, side stage, audience footage that appears in this documentary is is tremendous. And it has a running time of only 100 minutes, so it doesn't really overstay its welcome. If you know the story, you aren't going to be shocked by anything. It wildly avoids being about Biggie's death. Biggie's death, obviously, not ignored. But, you know, it's much more about his coming up on the streets. It's about his time as a crack dealer. It's about the demo tape that broke him wide. And I found all of that to be likable and appealing. And basically, the the thing is, when you work with the Big Estate, when you work with the people who have the rights to this stuff, you get to have the music. And if you get to have the music, I can I can watch a 100 minute documentary about Biggie that's all, you know, Biggie music, Biggie demos, uh, you know, Biggie freestyling in the streets. I can watch that happily. It's it's not going to reinvent your conception, but if you are a fan of the man, and he was one of the greatest MCs of all time, it's it's worth checking out. It doesn't overstay its welcome. So, in a slow week, by all means. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by the showrunner and creator of Sci-Fi's Winona Earp. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help build word of mouth and move us up search engines and whatnot. Uh, we're always happy to see you guys on Twitter. So tweet us if you have questions, comments, and concerns for future mailbag segments. And somehow Paramount Plus keeps getting in the way of mailbag segments by announcing new stuff. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it won't happen forever, though. And one of these days, we will need a mailbag segment. So we are here for you with all of your questions. Uh, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Go Dodgers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams. And come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.